kids ages three, four, up to kindergarten, including kindergarten, you can head to the back and you'll head up to your classroom in just a moment. If you're not three years old or four years old or in kindergarten, you're here, which means take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter two this morning. Titus chapter two, we're continuing our time in the short letter. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2. Well, I'm going to read all of chapter 2 and uh, into chapter 3, just the first two verses in chapter 3. We're going to continue to consider uh, what Paul writes to Titus in his uh, instruction to Titus to instruct those at the churches of Crete uh, to uh, be firm and consistent with sound doctrine. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I see one in the back still. You feel free to pick it up. There are more on the table under the, uh, under the offering box. Our time together is much more enjoyable, I'm convinced, if you have the Word of God open on your lap or on your phone so that you can be continually looking at the things that I'm referencing. These are the very words of God given to us this morning, and they are as potent as if Jesus himself were standing here speaking them to us uh, in this place. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. I'm more than a little encouraged uh, by the number of conversations that I've had with you this week. Many of you talking about and beginning to understand more the simple exhortation to simple obedience to King Jesus that we find here in Titus. There are so many very low level, just simple understandings that we as believers can glean for many spheres of life. And this morning we're going to focus on a handful of more spheres of life. 
Simple obedience is seeing what the text plainly says and seeking to live it out in, in our lives. We ask the question, what instruction for life does God give me here in his word? Not that this is floating over my head on a Sunday morning, but there is, there is a clear actionable item here for me. What's the way that I can live it out? Whatever we see here on the page this morning, what is the way that I can live it out uh, this morning? even right now. For instance, we've talked about this a couple of times throughout our time in these chapters, but uh, self-control is mentioned four times in chapter two. Self-control is mentioned four times, and whenever we see that multiple times, we know that there's emphasis that that is added here, emphasis for us, uh, and we need to take notice. Careful Bible readers will look at chapter two and say, I've seen self-control named four times here. What does that mean for me? And for us, it means that we should be self-controlled. It's legitimately that simple. Uh, So, if we look at that and we look at the admonition to older men, younger men, older women, training younger women to be self-controlled, we see there that, uh, that we need to ask the Holy Spirit regularly to reveal to us places where we lack self-control. And really, honestly, can I say this to you? If you pray that prayer, if you pray, uh, God, would you reveal to me a place where I have lacked self-control recently in my life? He will answer that prayer and you answer it very quickly. This is because it is in step with what God's design is for us in Christ. Where did you allow your passions or your emotions to carry you this week into sin? Did you snap at your spouse? Did you discipline your children in anger? Did you give in lust and click through on an inappropriate website? Did your employer reprimand you at work and so you slandered him or her behind their back? You shouldn't have to think very hard. And again, the Holy Spirit will bring it to you very quickly. And when that becomes the case, we say there. Now, simple obedience, repent of your lack of self-control. Give your sin over to Jesus Christ, who took it upon himself on the cross. Your sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ. It is gone. You are forgiven. It is as far from you as the east is from the west. The Holy Spirit will then empower you and strengthen you to obey the word of God. So. I'm not telling you this morning, look at a list of things and conjure some good work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you're not brought to maturity by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So simple obedience really requires three things, and the believer has all three. Every one of you in here who has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, who's repented of your sin, turned from it, and trusted Jesus, you have these three things. First, the thing sitting open on your lap, God's Word. God's Word this morning. In it, we find what is true and right in God's eyes. We must be well acquainted with who God is and who we are and what God requires of us. That's the first thing. The second thing is something that you can only have in Christ. The new birth gives it to you. Being born again gives it to you. When you trust Jesus, you receive a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. The unbeliever is unable to hear and see the truth in God's word, so he or she is unable to obey. But God gives the believer a soft, malleable, formable heart in order 
that it may receive God's word. So God's word can penetrate and shape it into Christ's image. Where we willingly and where we love to obey King Jesus. So first, God's word. Second, a heart of flesh. And third, the Holy Spirit. We are all given the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever is incapable of determining his sin. He may have a sense of morality based on the culture at large. He may have a sense of right and wrong, what he should and shouldn't do. But he cannot determine why something is immoral or right or wrong out of some natural ordering or societal reason. But God the Father and God the Son gives the believer the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, to illuminate how God's word has been transgressed, and then to provide the strength to repent and obey King Jesus. So every believer has a new heart, a heart that can receive God's word, and the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and strengthens the believer for obedience. And so these verses here, And Titus plainly tell older, more mature believers, men and women, to invest in younger believers. And this has been the source of much of our conversation this last week. And here's the thing. Uh, We will, as a church, take that. And these conversations will become a reality. And either they will be woven into the fabric of who we are, and then when the fire comes and tests us, it will be part of who we are, or they will be burned off. If this is true and genuine fruit, if the mind, if your mind has been turning this week, and if it's been saying, how is it as an older, more mature believer that I can be investing in younger Christians? Or how as a younger, less mature Christian can I put myself in a position to be invested in by older, more mature Christians? When we put ourselves in those positions, when adversity, when hardship, when trials come, if they become woven into the fabric, of who we are as a church, then they will last. You will come under fire at work. You will come under fire at home. You will find yourself under fire in many circumstances. And will you isolate yourself and run? Or will you press in with people who care about you and love you deeply because Christ loved them first? Simple obedience drives us to move this into the fabric of who we are. Not by our own efforts, but by King Jesus. So, keep going. Don't stop. Don't don't think to yourself, I've got to do this myself. Rather, submit yourself fully to God. Understand that He is the one that will bring about this fruit in our lives. Continue to press into His Word. Seek to know Him more. A heart of flesh receives these things and lives in the strength that the Holy Spirit gives. And many of yourself find yourself in this position right now. And I'm grateful to God. So if this week the Holy Spirit has prompted obedience in you, younger believers finding more mature believers to follow here at Buffalo City Church, or older, more mature believers finding younger believers to invest in here at Buffalo City Church, don't delay. Don't delay in realized obedience. Potential is nice. Realized is better. When we are prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something, we must be doers of the word, not just hearers alone. James says it like this. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is clear. It's clear to us this morning. Don't delay in obedience. If you've heard, now it's time to do. In Christ, you've been given everything that you need for obedience. God's word, heart of flesh, and the Holy Spirit. So, let's consider this morning a couple of areas of this text that we have yet to consider. And remember, we are given these things so that we might live in simple obedience. But this is the kindness of God to us as a church. The kindness of God to us as a church is that we don't have to guess. You as a believer, you as a believer, we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess what we should do or how we should live in light of the sound doctrine that's present in verses 11 through 14. And I want to remind you that the, the foundation of everything that's being built here is in verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, this is Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the foundation of everything else that we see here in chapters 2 and bleeding over into chapter 3. God is kind because he doesn't give us or leave us to guess, but he tells us exactly what the foundation is. What the foundation is, it's sound doctrine found in verses 11 through 14 and how the structure should look as it's built up. What does the structure look like as it's built up? Older, more mature believers investing in younger believers. Um, and this morning we're going to see the uh, uh, unpack the understanding of what it looks like to live in godly conduct in, in our work and as, as, uh, as earthly citizens. So, we're going to consider more of that structure that, that rests upon the firm foundation, the sound doctrine in verses 11 through 14. So, looking at our text, three things are going to guide our time together this morning. Three things to consider, and we're going to kind of begin in verse um, 7, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 in chapter 2, and then we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3. And these three things will guide our time together. First, the model of good works. Second, a mind to work. And third, the manner of earthly life. So first, the model of good works. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul turns his attention. He's been telling Titus how to instruct older believers uh, and, and how they are meant to be investing in younger believers. But now he turns his attention to, in verse 7, to Titus himself. Paul is giving direct instruction to Titus here. Let me read them. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul left Titus in Crete, we learned that earlier in the letter, for the purpose of establishing order and appointing elders. And this is a big task for Titus. There are multiple churches on this little island in the Mediterranean. Um, 
and there are lots of cultural issues to be faced and lots of false teaching that's being uh, shoved down the throats of the members of these small and fledgling churches. And so this is a big time task. Titus needs to be himself then shaped by sound doctrine. He can't lead people where he has not yet himself gone. And so Paul is giving him instruction about what his conduct should look like as one who is leading out in these areas. Uh, the conduct, again, that is grounded in sound doctrine. And so Paul instructs two things in verses 7, well, really just verse 7, two things, and then 8 expounds on it. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Is that an example? And in your teaching, and then he says, and then he gives this list. Um, So it's to be an example and to teach. To be an example and to teach. First, Titus must be a model of good works. So Paul knows that Titus must practice what he preaches. And nothing disqualifies a pastor elder faster than living that doesn't match his preaching or teaching. And we see this all over our culture. Men in positions of leadership in the churches who are embroiled in moral failure or who love money and influence, who care about outward appearance first. And it cuts against what they claim to believe in what they teach because it simply cannot be the case to keep up this facade and to believe the gospel that says when we were dead in our sins, we were made alive in Christ. The elder of the local church must be therefore a man of character, a hearer and doer of the word like James said. And the character is outlined by Paul earlier in the letter and we saw it in verses 6 through 9 in chapter 1. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of God, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. When other things become the criteria for the leadership in the church, when other things become the criteria for eldership, the church opens the door to being led by men who are not the model of good work. A gregarious personality, a dynamic speaker, an influencer or motivator, a high degree of business acumen, these things are not the criteria for assessing elders. An elder must be a model of good work. None of those things are forbidden. They're helpful, but they're not at the heart of what it means to be an elder in the local church. It is first and foremost based on godly conduct and character. What are the good works, though, that Paul is talking about for Titus specifically? And I think it's what we've been talking about. I think it's spirit-empowered, simple obedience to the word of God. What is it that these good works are made up of? Spirit-empowered, simple obedience to the Word of God. Does he live according to sound doctrine? Does, is the gospel the foundation for this man's teaching, not only his teaching though, and also his living? Does he teach and instruct? And do those things give us an example to follow in this area? Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, this is much more challenging 
for the leader than it is for those who are following. Consider the outcome of the way of life. The elder, the pastor of the local church, must be relying wholly on God to produce fruit in his life in order that others may follow. In order that we might say, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we must with fear and trembling come before a holy God, be the first to repent, the first to trust, the first to apply the text. Today after congregational worship, we're going to have a potluck, which it already smells amazing. I think it smells amazing in here. Sometimes I, I, my olfactory gland isn't as operational as I'd like it to be. Um, but after, okay. Uh, <laughs> After, uh, I was just in like preaching mode and I tried to make a joke and it didn't make any sense. Okay, so uh, after congregational worship, we're going to vote then after the potluck on, on John Bumgardner as an elder. And the current elders, Mark and Blaze and I, believe John to be a model of good works. He's in fact a man of character, a man of faith who lives according to sound doctrine, um, someone who has sharpened our congregation dramatically in the last uh, in the last four or five years that he's been part of Buffalo City Church. Um, he is, uh, the foundation for his living is the gospel, and he's a man whose faith should be looked at as exemplary and imitated by those who are at Buffalo City Church. This is what we're voting on. We're not voting on some other things. We're not voting on a gregarious personality or a dynamic speaker, although John is, in, in, in my uh, assessment, a, a pretty good preacher. He's a man of character, and so that's what we're looking at. Titus and everyone who is set apart to lead in the local church needs to look very closely at verses 7 and 8 as well as verses 6 through 9 in chapter 1 and internalize the things that are said here. They must be a model of good works. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, that Titus is instructed in is found in the second half of verse 7. Uh, In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, I think it's interesting that he says, he's addressing Titus, he's addressing one man, but he says, so that nothing evil can be said about us. The word of God should not be reviled among us as a congregation because of the conduct of those who are put in positions of leadership in the local church. The word of God cannot be reviled among the community at large because of the conduct and the teaching of those who are the leaders of the local church. Depending on your translation, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, those words probably popped up similarly, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. But if you're looking at a different translation, you may see several different words there that describe the teaching of Titus. For integrity, you may see something like uncorruptness uh, or purity of doctrine. And these things all kind of come together. When we think of the word integrity, we oftentimes think of character. We use that to describe someone's character. We say that he's a man of integrity or she's a woman of integrity. And it's an important character quality, but it's being applied specifically here to teaching. What does it mean, that teaching? So think of a physical structure. Think of a building. Integrity in that physical structure. Is it sound? Is it intact? Is it whole? Paul In the book of Acts, in chapter 20, verse 27, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, the elders of the Ephesian church, and he says to them that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Integrity in teaching is not leaving anything out or diluting or polluting the teaching of God's word for any reason. There is no reason that an elder or a, a pastor in the local church should ever dilute or pollute the word of God. Not to motivate people, not because they're fearful of what people might say. They're to present the whole counsel of God before the congregation every week. In those instances, that well, the temptation uh, for doing anything other than this comes when the hearers of the message of God's word are hostile to what's being said on the page. When people are hostile to God's word, the temptation is to back off of these things and not press into them further. In those instances, the teacher may, or preacher may be willing to compromise what is true, to dilute or pollute the word in order that it might be tolerated better by the hearers. But Paul warns of this very thing in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Integrity in teaching means that the message is whole and in good condition. The message that is coming from Scripture, is whole and in good condition. Paul also says that Titus's teaching should have dignity, or you might see gravity or seriousness or reverence. The teaching must communicate the weight of God's word. This is God's very word given to us, and there's weight that comes with it. The creator of the heavens and the earth, who knows you more intimately than you know yourself, who knows exactly where the universe ends and where it begins, This one knows you. And the word of God, then when spoken, because it brought everything into existence, because it gave us new life in Christ, because of all that it has accomplished and all the fruit that it has borne and everything that you see around you as a result of God's word, the reality is that this comes with very a whole lot of weight. It's not a comedy hour. It's not a TED talk. The teaching comes from one true and living God. And then he says sound speech. Um, in, in, your, in all respects, be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Sound speech, again, undivided, intact. Grounded in truth. And note that the teaching and the modeling of good works, the setting an example and, uh, and, and teaching have a goal so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. The goal is to avoid condemnation by sticking closely and carefully to the word of God. And it is to silence those who attack the teacher and those who sit under the teaching. Those two things that Paul commands Titus to put on display in himself, simple obedience with the foundation as the gospel. This is the model first of good work. The second thing I want you to see here, though, is a mind to work. A mind to work. And we see this in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2. Ralph read from Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I love this, I love this picture that's painted in that passage for us. Because in verse 6, it says the people had a mind to work despite the opposition that was coming hot and heavy against them. There were men who were literally there simply jeering against the Israelites as they 
as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They worked to rebuild the wall. They were attacked verbally. They endured the jeers of the onlookers, but they were given a task by God to rebuild the wall. And they therefore had the mind to work. Now in verses 9 and 10, in our passage, Paul addresses bondservants, or in your translation, it might say slaves. Uh, Working relationships between our culture and this culture that Paul is writing to, is uh, they're pretty different. They're very different, in fact. And it's not exactly a one-to-one, but slaves are bondservants and masters in Crete are who being, or who, this is who are being addressed. But they looked different than our employee-employer-employee-employee relationships today. But it is, it is reasonable to think about the way that Paul writes to bondservants here as, uh, as you would consider yourself in your day-to-day vocational work as an employee. And the end of verse 9 here gives us the, uh, the heart of the matter. And we should begin to see a pattern emerging if we haven't. Oh, excuse me. At the end of verse 10, gives us the heart of the matter. Uh, so, and then we should begin to see this pattern emerging. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Earlier, uh, older women are meant to instruct younger women in order that the word of God may not be reviled. Uh, Titus is supposed to teach and model good works and teach with integrity and dignity and sound speech so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And now employees are supposed to work in such a way in order that those around them may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. That in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. That might be a phrase that we're familiar with, but it's literally putting on. Putting on, like clothing, the doctrine of God our Savior. How should an employer or an employee, rather, uh, conduct himself in his work according to sound doctrine is the first answer, and we find what that looks like. Bondservants are submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So the Jews rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem in Nehemiah uh, were not operating under perfect working conditions. And if we look at this list, I think first we think to ourselves, how am I supposed to carry this out when my employer's a jerk? How am I supposed to do this when the people around me are always getting in my way when I'm trying to get stuff done? What am I supposed to do when at 4 p.m. on a Friday I get heaped and a bunch of work, extra work gets piled on me that needs to be done by 5? How do I, how does this look? How does this look in like in those settings which seem to be very hostile? Something we tend to think about in our own vocational work is that we deserve to, and we're kind of told this regularly by culture, is that we deserve to work in an environment with very little relational friction or a work environment that always suits our fancy. I should be able to work in a stress-free environment, we think, with, with not much, uh, with not much uh, problem. And, I, and managers who hear me and understand me and cater even to me. But the simple obedience to God's word in our work looks like what's included here. 
godly conduct in our vocational work matter. Godly conduct matters for our Christian witness. Adorning the doctrine of God will result in what what it looks like here. Our beliefs might be countercultural. They might cut against the grain of sometimes our employer's value. But they will not result in the word of God being reviled if our conduct agrees with sound doctrine. And so the mind to work, even in the situation that the Jews found themselves when rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, the mind to work includes, uh, includes consistency and conduct with sound doctrine. So the question for you, is your vocational work and the way that you conduct yourself in it consistent with sound doctrine? Do you see those who have managed you as appointed by God for their task and you for yours? All earthly authority is under authority. But the reality is, you are under authority at work, typically. Do you despise it or do you submit to it? Uh, Additionally, are you honest in your dealing? Not pilfering? Are you, are you compliant? This is, the heart of this matter is contentment. Do I find myself content in my workplace? Do I find contentment in the reality that God has placed me here right now? Despite the fact that I might have a boss who is not, is not always easiest to work with. Despite the reality that the company might be taking a direction that I'm not sure that I'm in on. Find contentment where you are. Work as one who is designed by God to do so and allow sound doctrine to be your adornment. The mind to work. The third thing we see here is in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. The manner of earthly life. Let me read these two verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Titus is told by Paul how the men and the women of the churches of Crete should conduct themselves as earthly citizens. And again, all authority on earth is put under some other authority and is put there by God. We are to submit to the rulers and authorities placed above us by God. This is what we're reminded both in verses uh, 9 and 10 and in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. At the same time, again, we recognize that all earthly authority is under God's authority. No authority here was appointed outside of the purview of God. And we all live somewhere. Um, We all live here. And I think most of us in this room are citizens of the United States of America. So as American citizens, we're reminded by this passage to do several things. And we can practically think about this because they're listed right here and because we are citizens of a particular, uh, a particular country with borders. We have a state and a state government. We have lo- uh, a, a city and a and local government. Reminds us to be submit to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is the list that shows how believers are to live according to sound doctrine 
as earthly citizens. And I think this is relatively uh, self-explanatory. There's no real interpretive challenges here for us. We have to ask ourselves the question, as citizens of the United States of America, as North Dakotans, as those who reside in the city of Jamestown or the surrounding region, what does it look like to live into these things? And it would seem that Christians in the United States of America have been asking more and more regularly what it means to be a Christian and to live in a culture that's going a a, a particular direction further and further away from Christianity. Like, what does it actually mean to submit to rulers and authorities? Does it mean I have to go along with legislation and public policies that violate personal convictions? Can I speak out against government-sanctioned immorality? and be obedient to God's word. Paul says something similar to what he says here in 1 Timothy, chapter 2 to Timothy, also one of the disciples of Paul, just like Titus is. Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings and all who are in high places. And he says the purpose of that is so that we might live peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In the early church, as the church was expanding, it was oftentimes under fire because the cultural values looked dramatically different than the world's values that the gospel was going into. So even in Crete, some of the immorality that was present there uh, was, was very prevalent. Husbands and wives had their roles reversed as to what we would consider to be uh, even traditional in our context. There were many different ways in which the culture around them was hostile to the value system, to the morality that was being brought or become, becoming apparent as a result of the gospel's influence taking hold in these communities. Paul tells Timothy to pray for these kings and those who are in high places for the purpose of leading a quiet and peaceful life. Lots of persecution at these churches, however. Many were martyred. But it's the gospel that transforms people and it transforms culture. And so when the gospel takes heart, the hold of the heart of people in a community, in a local community, uh, it changes things. It changes the world. It does so through Christians who are earthly citizens walking as Christ walked, living according to sound doctrine, even when it cuts against the cultural grain. Jesus didn't come with military might. We know he came as a baby in a manger. He didn't come with governmental power or even seek to drum it up. He came in the form of a servant. Look again at verses 1 and 2. These are the very things that Jesus came in. The humility that is present here in these qualities. Gentleness. The avoiding of quarreling. Speaking evil of no one. Showing perfect courtesy. The gospel transforms people and it transforms culture. And so are you convinced that culture is transformed by being the angriest voice or accumulating the most power? It's not. Walking as Jesus walked, Jesus Christ is king and he is the final authority. And these are the things as earthly citizens that we are told to participate in. In his charge, all, all of the citizens of earthly kingdoms are to do the very things that are described here in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, 
Submit to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. The model of good works, the mind of the mind to work, and the manner of earthly life. Let's put a bow on this and draw some conclusion thought, concluding thoughts this morning. Titus is told by Paul, I'm going to give you a summary of where we've been for the last three weeks, very briefly. Titus is told by Paul to teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse two. But as for or verse one, excuse me, in chapter two. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Therefore, older, more mature believers are to invest in younger believers in the church, teaching and modeling living that is consistent with sound doctrine. Secondly, our vocational work and our civic life should be consistent with sound doctrine. And finally, elders within the church are to be the model of this living that is consistent with sound doctrine. If Paul tells Titus to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine, these three things must become evident in the life of believers within the local church. Why does living according to sound doctrine matter for the church? We see this at the end of chapter one. It protects against cultural conformity. It protects against false teaching. And finally, it shapes all spheres of life. Our life together as a body our homes, our vocational work, and our life as earthly citizens. Considering these things, though, then considering what we've seen together in our time in chapter, well, the second half of chapter one, chapter two, and now the beginning of chapter three, what should we take away? I'm going to give you four things relatively quickly. First thing, Buffalo City Church, we must first be committed to sound doctrine. We must first be committed to sound doctrine. And remember, sound doctrine, again, if that's not a term that you use regularly or think about regularly, we're talking about true statements about belief. The true statements that flow from God's word and come to us in order that we might understand what it is that God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. In order that we might understand who God is in order that we might understand who we are, and in order that we might understand what's required of us as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Again, this content is summarized in verses 11 through 14. Commit that to memory. This sound doctrine is the foundation of godly living. What Christians are tempted to sometimes do is see lists like the one that we see in chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, and through... uh, verse 10 in chapter 2, and then again pick up again in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. We see lists like the ones here in Titus, and then we attempt to squeeze ourselves into them. This is what I was talking about earlier. If we attempt to follow these things and do these things in our own strength, as soon as fire comes, as soon as adversity comes, as soon as trials come, they will be burned off. They will go away. In your own strength, you do not have the ability to keep these things up, to keep the facade up. And when the winds of, uh, of frustration come and, and when, they, when, the, when the things around us go up in smoke, 
what winds up happening is frustration and burnout. It winds out being this facade, this guise to look good or to fit into the community. And you can do this. You can, you can do this. You can show up on a Sunday morning and put on a face and say, yeah, I'm living into these things. And the reality is, as soon as you walk out this door, it's completely different. That is possible. Becomes a house of cards that gets pushed over by the slightest wind. People lobbing accusations at the church of legalism or fundamentalism because they feel like they've been manipulated to act a certain way. Because I stood up in front of you and said, there's a list here that accords with sound doctrine. Don't be such a legalist. I'm not telling you, though, to rely on the works of the law for your salvation. If that's what you've heard, you're gravely mistaken. There's only one place to go to be saved, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. To repent of your sin and believe. These lists flow from a life that has trusted Jesus Christ first. If you only see a list here, that you have to force yourself to follow, it's because you haven't trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's because you have not been transformed. You have not been changed. Those who are joined to Christ by faith are not putting on a list of actions, but putting on Jesus Christ himself. Paul says in Romans 13, 14, he tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, clothe yourself in him. Adorn yourself in sound doctrine is what's told to bondservant. And here, what it means is to clothe yourself in Christ, becoming more like him. Christians love to put on Christ. We don't abhor or despise the things that we see in these lists, but we say, Jesus Christ, how could I be more like you as the one who came to earth to die so that I might live, who gave your life for mine. How might I live for you? How might I live as you live? Walk as you walk. The commands of Christ for those who are in Christ are not burdensome, but they are life-giving. Sound doctrine is the foundation of godly living because it means the foundation is Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Sound doctrine is the foundation for godly living because it means the foundation is Jesus Christ. The strength to put on Christ comes from Christ, not from our human effort. If you see a list, you've missed the point. We must first be committed to sound doctrine, and by saying that I mean we must first be committed to Jesus Christ. Second thing I would say in conclusion is for the believer, our vocational work always includes godly conduct. You separate these? I think we're tempted to. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we separate our vocational work from godly conduct. We talk about it in our homes a lot. We talk about it in even in the body of Christ a lot. But do we think about our vocational work in this way? You should absolutely work with everything that's in you. Hard work matters, and you were created for hard work. God placed Adam in the garden, and he told him to work it and keep it. That's a big task. But you can work hard, and you can ignore godly conduct. 
And the conduct that Paul commands Titus to teach here is what we need to put on. Are you just get the job done at all costs type of person? If you are, that means that you're probably frequently running people over. Because you're slandering coworkers, or you're cutting corners, or you're ignoring supervisors and managers and heads of your department. If you're tempted to compartmentalize godly conduct and vocational work, the encouragement here is to adorn the doctrine of God. For employees and for those who have a vocation, the outworking of the gospel is found in verses 8 and 9 here in Titus. Having a mind to work is having or doing work that is a form informed by sound doctrine. Christians should make the best employees, the best vocational workers, because they are created to work, they understand and know the God who created them to work, and in Christ they are given a mind to work, which includes godly conduct. And so put on Christ in your vocational work. Additionally, this is the next concluding point, Additionally, our earthly citizenship always includes godly conduct. Again, most of us, if not all of us here, are citizens of the United States of America. We live in North Dakota and specifically in Jamestown or right around it. And the world we live in is a grumbling world. A world we live in is a grumbling world. We like to grumble about things a lot, but we, especially the political climate in the United States. But we who are putting on Christ, those who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, must not be grumbling about political policy, about the trajectory of our country. But not being grumblers doesn't mean we're not doing anything. This is where we miss the mark in the church when it comes to our earthly citizenship. We don't say, oh, look at this thing. I need to be submissive to rulers and authorities and be obedient. Therefore, I throw up my hands and just say, well, it is what it is and walk away. That's not what Paul is saying. Sometimes Christians make the mistake of reading a list like this one in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3. And then uh, they think they just have to shut their mouths altogether. But submission and obedience to rulers and authorities doesn't mean necessarily agreement. Obeying rulers and authorities isn't jeopardized by acting to overturn or oppose immoral legislation. We can't watch content churned out by our favorite political talking heads and then just regurgitate the slanderous the slanderous accusations and talking points that we see in those places. Rather, we must get into the fight and get into the action and live according to the things that are here, but uh, to work, to take the gospel to the world. Because when the gospel takes hold of the hearts of people, it changes the world. We are told here to be ready for every good work as earthly citizens. What does it mean to be ready for every good work? Are we in the earthly realm ready for every good work? Are we ready or do we uh, refuse to speak evil of no one? Do we refuse to quarrel? Do we uh, aspire to be gentle? Do we desire to show perfect courtesy to all people? In a month or so around the Thanksgiving dinner table, one of your family members is likely to throw the political conversation grenade into the middle of the table and as it goes off, put on Christ. Put on Christ. Our earthly citizenship always includes godly conduct. Finally, last thing. Simple obedience is seeing the command and its grounding in sound doctrine and seeking to live consistent with that sound doctrine now. 
It's often said, and I alluded to it at the beginning of our time together, that delayed obedience is in fact disobedient. Are you seeing these simple commands that come here in the word of God that you are empowered for, that you are prepared to receive as one who has the word of God, as one who has a heart of flesh, as the one who has the Holy Spirit? Are you seeing these simple commands before you this morning? And are you ignoring them? Are you thinking, I'll get around to it later? Brothers and sisters, for those who are in Christ, these things are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. They are sweet like honey for those who have put on Christ. Putting on Christ, walking as Christ walked, ask yourself the question, how can I ground myself further in sound doctrine? And again, simply putting or committing verses 11 through 14 here to memory is a great place to start. There's still memory cards in the back table. Pick that up. Put it on your mirror at home. Put it in your car before you turn the car on. Read through it one time. Commit it to memory. And then all the application of the sound doctrine that you need to begin down this path is right here for you. Your life within the church, older, more mature believers investing in younger believers, your vocational work, what does it look like? Your civic life. Friends, let's not overcomplicate these things. They sit on the page before us. God has been kind to us, showing us them. May the Spirit of Christ prompt obedience in us as we look to Christ, the one who obeyed, in order that we might come to this obedience, in order that we may be freed to it, in order that the word of God might not be reviled, but rejoice in by all those who observe our doctrine through our conduct. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have promised to use it to bring about fruit in our lives. God, if there are those here this morning who are trusting in self, who have focused exclusively on themselves as we've looked at this passage, would you pull that out of them? God, would you drain that from them? in order that they might see that Jesus Christ is a great Savior and comes to save those of us, all of us, who are great sinners. God, we recognize that we've violated many things in your word. God, and we do not rely now on our obedience to these things to save us. But God, would you produce them in us in order that we might be those who show the world, who speak the truth of the gospel to those around us in order that many might come to saving faith. God, would you change our, our, our community because of this? God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.